you meet me in the book of Luke, Luke chapter 23. The time uh, was our enemy this morning in trying to finish uh, this lesson. There's too much really to, uh, to put into just a few minutes to, uh, that we have. I would really encourage you to really study this. It's one of the most remarkable um, conver- uh, conversions in the Bible, without, without, uh, without a doubt. Uh, the 180-degree turn that is made here in this uh, passage shows, uh, shows the Lord Jesus Christ saves us from the uttermost, uh, guttermost of the uttermost, there's no doubt, and does an amazing work. And so if you have your Bibles, um, Luke 23 is where we're going to be. We have a special music this morning? Okay. Luke 23. I want you to pick it up in verse number 32. Verse 32. And there were also two other malefactors led with him to be put to death. And when they were come to the place which is called Calvary, there they crucified him. And the malefactors. One on the right hand and the other on the left. Then said Jesus, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. And they parted his raiment and cast lots. And the people stood beholding, and the rulers also with them derided him, saying, He saved others, let him save himself, if he be the Christ, the chosen of God. And the soldiers also mocked him, coming to him and offering him vinegar, and saying, If thou be the king of the Jews, save thyself. And the superscription also was written over him in letters of Greek and Latin and Hebrew. This is the king of the Jews. And one of the malefactors which were hanged railed on him saying, If thou be the Christ, or if thou be Christ, save thyself and us. But the other answering rebuked him saying, Dost not thou fear God, seeing thou art in the same condemnation for or rather, and we indeed justly, for we receive the due reward of our deeds. But this man had done nothing amiss. And he said unto Jesus, Lord, remember me when thou comest into thy kingdom. And Jesus said unto him, Verily I say unto thee, Today shalt thou be with me in paradise. You pray with me and for me. Father, we thank you for the privilege and opportunity to gather around this precious book. We hold the eternal words in our laps today. We're thankful for that, Lord. And I pray you'd help us, guide us, bless, Lord, the time that we have. And I pray, God, there's one here this morning that is not saved, that they would get saved before it is eternally too late. Time is running out. And God, for those that are saved, I pray that we'd have a renewed appreciation for our salvation. Help us understand the depth of love that the Lord Jesus Christ displayed for us and the depth of our depravity that he forgave. Guide us and help us, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Story here is, uh, as I mentioned, it's remarkable. Luke 23 is the only place in the uh, Bible that records the conversion of this man. Uh, The other two Gospels uh, do mention the story, but do not mention the conversion. And so... We don't have a lot about this, but what we have is enormous. And a lot of false doctrines, by the way, crumble under the story. A lot of uh, a works-based salvation 
that, uh, that many, unfortunately, are in today crumble under what happens here. And there's really no answer uh, that uh, any that would believe that you can work your way to heaven have in regard to what happened here in Luke 23. It is an amazing story. I call it the amazing conversation for a couple of reasons. One, it's amazing grace that was displayed to this, uh, this man. And two, it's amazing repentance that this man displayed toward Christ, one that we don't see today, much today. We don't speak about repentance. We don't see uh, Bible teaching and preaching on repentance today, but this man did indeed repent. And the Bible makes it clear as you look at the stories, we, st- we studied this, and I'm saying this in, in a good way, we studied this song when we sang this song. It was a, an incredible insight to what Christ did on the cross 2,000 years ago when he walked up uh, Calvary's mountain. It makes it very clear that when he died, according to Isaiah 52, verse number 14, that he was to suffer, that he was going to have a face or a visage that was not going to be recognizable uh, more than any man. In other words, when he was crucified, according to the prophecy in Isaiah 52, that you would not be able to recognize him as a man. It'd be impossible to even know that he was even human because of his visage was so marred. Remarkable, remarkable pain. And the Bible also makes it clear that in addition to the pain that the Lord Jesus Christ is going to suffer, it's not all about pain. Although there was quite a bit of pain to suffer for mankind, to be crucified for us. But it's more than just pain. There was a purpose of the cross. There was a reason that he was at the cross. It wasn't just to be a good example of a sacrifice. It wasn't just to show how to deny yourself. There was a purpose. He was fulfilling a purpose, a prophecy. In fact, the Bible says in Isaiah 53 explicitly that he was bruised for our personal pronoun iniquities. And you'll find that he took our place. He was the uh, propitiation for our sin. He was the one that was crucified for us who knew no sin, the Bible says. And so in great detail, you find that as he suffered, uh, it's very plain that in addition to the pain, in addition to the agony, in addition to the cruel crucifixion, the cruel crucifixion of uh, Rome on Christ, it was more than just about pain. It was about purchase. It was about a price that was being purchased uh, for our sin. In fact, the Bible says in John ten fifteen that uh, he spe- speaking, Christ speaking, that I laid down my life for the sheep. In Mark 10, 35, the Bible says to give his life a ransom for many. And I could go on and on about the purpose of the cross. It wasn't just to suffer. It was a, it was a purchasing time. It was one that was predicted. It was one that was going to be fulfilled. But it was one, as we know, that was, was, was the only means by which man can be saved. And even though Jesus hung on the cross in this excruciatingly painful crucifixion, He was now giving his life as an illustration, more than an illustration of a sacrifice. But for this day here, in the midst of all this suffering and agony and pain that he was going through, he reached out in love and compassion to forgive one more person in the midst of all this, in the midst of all this agony. And so as you look at this, this record 
of what happened here on this day gives an incredible insight to the depth that the Lord Jesus Christ will reach and take a sinner and the height to which the Lord Jesus Christ will restore this sinner to. Absolutely amazing. And so they record here this thief. In fact, you'll you'll find here, if you look in verse 39, there's a word here that we don't use in our modern English language today, but the word here is malefactor, verse 39. And you'll have to kind of unpack a little bit about where this man is coming from. As you know, we have the Lord Jesus Christ in between the two thieves, which is a a fulfillment of Bible prophecy that he would be crucified between two thieves. And we have one on the left and then one on the right. Uh, But this is a reference, of course, this word here to his background, his malefactor. It means simply this, one who commits a crime, uh, one who is guilty of violating the laws in such manner as to be subject to public prosecution and punishment particularly in the capital punishment as a criminal. So a malefactor would be one that is being punished for the crimes against society. He's a violator of the laws. He's a violator of the lawgiver, which is the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, so he's a criminal. He has been caught. He has been condemned. He is now being crucified. Can I say it this way? He's only got a few hours to live. Uh, the crucifixion will last for him approximately six hours. It'll go from 9 o'clock in the morning, our time, to 3 o'clock in the afternoon, our time. About six hours of grueling crucifixion. And so, of course, as you know, the Romans did not discriminate. They, they crucified many people often. And this man would have gone through already a scourging. He would have already gone through the beating that others have gone through before the crucifixion. He would be taken outside of the city in a main a traveled area to be hung on a cross. In fact, the word hang is used here to describe uh, what he was doing in verse number 39. Because it says, and one of the malefactors which were hanged. So here's a hanging criminal. And the agony of his suffering uh, in the tragedy of this moment. And what makes this even more tragic, as is already tragic. Here's a man that has lived for the most part without God. Uh, He's lived his life as if there is no God. And what makes it more tragic is that he's about to die without God. He's about to leave this world without God, without the Lord Jesus Christ. And think about this this morning. We live in a smaller community, but we live in a community of sinners. We live in a community where often people die without God. They die without hope. They die without salvation. There are many here uh, this morning that uh, have lived a wicked life and they're headed for a lost eternity. Uh, They woke up this morning and their lives are uh, characterized as godless. They care nothing about the laws of God. They care nothing about the name of Christ. They want no righteousness. And, And the application, as I think, as you look at this, there are many this morning that are comfortable with that. They're okay living without God. They're okay with their life being defined as a life without God. They make their decisions as if there is no God. Uh, Their morals are based on the fact that there is no God. They speak, their speech, their their conduct uh, is one that would reference in their own life that there is uh, no God. Uh, So they sin as if there is no God. And I want to remind us this morning that, and as you know, any Bible believer knows this, 
that the Bible says in Psalm 14, verse 11, that the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. So an idea or a philosophy uh, that many accept today as, uh, as we are, see our society continuing to disintegrate into a moral decadency uh, where right is now wrong and wrong is now right. There's no difference between the holy and the profane. I want to remind you that hedonism or hedonism is really a belief that we eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we what? Die. And that's really what the essence of a life without God is, is get everything out. I mean, live it up. I mean, try to get as much as you can out of this life because there's no God and we uh, can just enjoy it, have all the pleasure, have all the thrills, have all the joy. And there's people here that live like that. And as you look at this, any life lived without God is a tragedy. The, the Bible is very clear that the way of the transgressor is hard. It's just a hard, difficult, grueling way to live. The Bible says there's pleasure in sin for a season. And yet more tragic than living without God is dying without him. I've been to many deathbeds in, in my ministry. I have been there after people have either, either passed away or I've been there right when they are passing away. And the testimonies are, are they vary. There, there are some that leave this world and they're, they're, they're angry. They're angry with themselves. They're angry with God. They're angry with their wife. They're angry with their children. They just leave angry. There are some that leave confused, confused about life, confused about purpose. There are some that leave this world terrified, terrified, screaming in agony and, and, uh, and wonder what's happening and where am I going to go? You can read a story or a book that I have in my office called The, the uh, Deathbed Testimonies of Saved and Unsaved, and you'll find over and over again the terrifying death of an unsaved person. Some leave this world terrified. Some leave this world with questions. You know, we realize when I'm brought into a, a person's bedside that has not known Jesus Christ as their Savior, do you realize a lot of questions come up? Questions about where am I going to go? Questions about how to be forgiven. Questions about uh, what happens after I die. And questions, questions, questions. And I thank God that I have the opportunity to give them answers to questions, but some do die with questions. Some die with regret. They look back at their life and they say, man, if I would have just done this different, if I would have just changed this, if I would have got this thing right, if I did not go there, if I did not stay there, and they have all kinds of regrets of what they've done in their life, they die with regret. And I would dare say that in this morning in the size of crowd that's here today, if things are not changed in your life, you're going to leave this world with regret. You're going to leave this world having understood you had opportunities, you had uh, a, a God's plan in your life, and you're going to leave this world with great regret. But this man here is leaving even different than all of what I just mentioned. He's leaving this world, this thief, this malefactor. He's leaving this world with arrogance, arrogance. How do I know that? And I want to say this real quick before I really unpack some verses to really cross-reference what's happening here. The Bible does clearly state the wicked shall be turned into hell. 
and all the nations that forget God. Do you realize the tail end of a nation is a nation that just simply says, we don't know who God is. They forget God. You want to know the tail end of any nation, any civilization, is when the civilization comes to a place where they don't even know where God is. They don't even know where truth is. One of the tragedies that we're seeing even today, almost a litmus test of what is coming in our nation, is the fact that we're not having preachers sending out and starting and going there's a dearth right now. This is a, this is a verifiable fact. There's a dearth right now, a drought right now of preachers in our country. Evangelists that go crisscross this nation, they cannot find pastors to fill pulpits. I'm talking about Bible-believing ch- pastors that fill Bible-believing churches. There's not a lot of them. It's as if God either A, has stopped calling, or B, we're not listening. And either one is a tragedy. The Bible says in 2 Thessalonians 1, the Bible says, in flaming fire, God, the Lord Jesus Christ, in flaming fire, taking vengeance on them that know not God, that obey not the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, who shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. As I said here, Men leave this world different, but I'm saying this morning that this man was leaving with arrogance. He's leaving with, if you would, a attitude against God. And he only has a few hours left to live. He's going to be killed on the cross. So look what it's saying here. Go to Matthew 27. Carefully look at these words here. Matthew 27, a cross-reference to Luke 23. Unfortunately, and I'm saying this as a human uh, understanding, there is no details of the conversion of this man in Matthew's account. But we do get some insight to what is happening here. If you look carefully at what is happening before he gets saved later, Matthew 27, verse 38, then there were, watch this, two thieves crucified with him, the one on the right hand and the other on the left. And they that passed by reviled him, wagging their heads. Now, we're going to see a little, unpack a little bit of what's happening here. When, when Rome would crucify, they would crucify in a major uh, traveled area where people would pass by, like a highway. They want everyone to know that these people, these subjects, these malefactors are being hung. They're being crucified for their crimes against Rome. And so they wanted everyone to see it. It would be a bloody mess. The Roman soldiers would be there. The blood would be there. The, uh, the scourging and all that would have taken place. And now they're hanging, the mocking, the laughing. And so as you can imagine, walking by in this situation here, this is different. We have three different men. One is the son of God. Two are thieves. And it says here that they, passed by, they that passed by reviled him. The word revile simply means using abusive language. It means the curse revile, blasphemy. So the guys that are passing by, the ladies that are passing by, they're not even connected to the crucifixion. They may have heard in general about who he was, but they're coming back and they're wagging their heads in disgust and they're reviling at him. And here's what they're saying. They heard this somewhere, so they're just repeating it, verse 40. And saying, thou that destroyest the temple and buildest it in three days, save thyself. If thou be the son of God, come down from the cross. This is a mocking, scorning statement made from lost people to the Son of God. 
Hey, you said you, I, I think I heard him say he was going to destroy the temple. He was going to build it. How's it going? How's it going now? Well, if save yourself, if, if, you're, if you are the son of God, save yourself. Now, that's one group of people. Then it says in verse number 41, likewise, also the chief priests mocking him with the scribes and the elders. And so now we have a group of three different people. We have now the passerbyers. Now we have the chief priests. Now we have the scribes. And now we have the elders. Now, this is the religious group today at the day. And they're, they're there. And they're doing, if you would, the same thing. Verse number 42. Here's, their statement is this. He saved others himself he cannot save. Now, look at the word if. If he be the king of Israel, let him now come down from the cross and we will believe him. Verse 43. He trusted in God. Let him deliver him now. Now, look at this phrase here. If he will have him. Now, you remember what they accused Jesus Christ of being, the son of Belial, okay? They accused Jesus Christ of being the devil. Are you all here? Now, they're saying if God would even have him. You see the mockery, the blasphemy in the statements from now the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders, those that pass by. And then it says, for, for I am the, for he said, I am the son of God. Now, if all that was just bad enough, you say, okay, that's Horrible for what they're saying. But then it gives in the verse number 44. The thieves also, plural. Carefully look at it. Not thief, thieves, plural. Both of them. Both of these thieves are saying the same thing. Which were crucified with him, cast the same in his teeth. Now can I say this? Both of the thieves coming to their own crucifixion are saying the same thing that the chief priests, the elders and the scribes are saying, and the passerbyers are saying. We find in Luke's account that the soldiers were mocking him with vinegar, offering vinegar to drink. So the soldiers were part of the No one knows what's going on here. No one knows what's happening on this day. Even the, even the disciples had no clue what was happening. That's clear that they didn't understand the crucifixion. So they had no idea what was happening. No one comprehended the enormity of this moment. The chief priest didn't know. The elders didn't know. The scribes didn't know. Those that passed by didn't know. Roman soldiers didn't know. And even the thieves who were being crucified did not know what was happening on this day. So this just became a laughing uh, spectacle. This became a mocking uh, party, if you would, a blasphemous celebration of the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. That's what this is, if you would, descended into. Reviled, speak evil of, to blaspheme. If, 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 three times used. And so at this point, the thieves, both plural, do not believe Jesus Christ is the Son of God. So can I prove this point this morning, that this man at this point in the crucifixion, is dying without God. He is dying as if and just the way he lived. He lived without God, and now he is dying without God. He does not believe the testimony of Jesus Christ. He does not believe that Jesus is the Son of God. He does not believe the very sign that is over the head of Jesus Christ, that he was the King of the Jews. This man is dying in this moment of anger, in this moment, if you would, of frustration, this moment of being crucified, this moment of pain. This man has enough energy to be a part of the mockery and the scourging, if you would, of Jesus Christ, which is to me a remarkable thing. 
You would think that someone being crucified would not have enough energy to say anything. And when he does speak, he speaks cursing to the Son of God. And so it's by his words, it's by his actions that tells where this man's heart is. He is lost, he's blinded, he's in darkness. Very perfect picture, isn't it, of many in the world today. Many in the world today would maybe not come out and mock Jesus Christ, but it is evidenced in the way they live. They live, this, they live as practical atheists. There are some in even churches today who claim to be saved and live as if there is no God. They live just like the heathen. They look at the things the heathens look at. They, they partake in what the heathens partake. They look, they act, they drink, they do the things that the heathens do. There's no difference They make no difference between the holy and the profane, practical atheists. And so this man is living as if God is dead. And of course, those who treat Jesus' name as a byword, you can understand. He ridiculed, he hated, he ignored, he vilified the very Son of God. Can I just say this while we're here? That hatred for the name of Jesus Christ is a very powerful, powerful, dark emotion. It's almost as if he got caught up in this this frenzy of hatred for Christ. He got caught up in this thing to where he had no problem using his last words to blaspheme the only one that could give him life. He had no problem using the energy, the, 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 the few amount of stewarded words that are coming out of his mouth as being ones that would blaspheme and ones that would curse and ones that would revile Christ. Had no problem with that at all. That's a powerful, powerful, dark emotion. The hatred for the name of Jesus Christ. But if you will go back to Luke 23, as I mentioned, this is an amazing story on several levels. One is that we're going to see the amazing grace of God, but one, we see amazing repentance of this thief. Now listen, if you have not appreciated your salvation, all of us are the thief on the cross. (laughs) If you're saved today, you're the thief on the cross. If you're lost today, you're the thief on the cross that didn't get saved. But I would say this morning, as you carefully look at this, something happened. Look at verse number 39. And one of the malefactors which was hanged railed on him, saying, If thou be the Christ, save thyself and us. Can I stop here right this on this, on this moment? Here's one thief still in his dark sin, still, still uh, blaspheming Christ. He's saying, get me down. <laughs> Give me a little more time. <laughs> I, I, if you're the Christ, just get us down from this cross. Listen, you, I, I, you, you could do it if you're the Christ. Just, I need more time. This is the ultimate of selfishness. We use the word narcissism, and, and it's ultimate extreme selfishness. This is what he wants, verse 40. But the other answering rebuked him, saying, now look at this phrase, dost not thou fear what? God. Now, what is going to happen from here is hinged on that statement right there. I don't know how it happened. I mean... Everyone was part of the mockery before this. Everyone was part of the, if you would, scorn and the, and the, the, the words and the language deriding him. Everyone was part of it, including both thieves. But something happened here to where this man has made a statement showing his heart. 
in this statement that is going to be made starting in verse number 40, down through verse number 41, he reveals, number one, that he fears God. He reveals openly that he confesses his own sin, not only before Christ, but before everyone that's listening. He confesses the sinlessness of Christ, and then he reaffirms the Messiahship of Christ, all in one verse. 180-degree turn. I mean, this man turned around. And as you look at this, think about this. We don't know a lot about the man. We don't know where he came from other than in and out, perhaps, of reform schools, in and out of trouble. I don't know how it started. I don't know if he started stealing small things when he was in school. He could have been Jewish. Most likely he was Jewish. Maybe he had a little bit of understanding of the Torah, uh, the understanding of the Bible. He understood who God was, but never cared about him. He was a troublemaker. He was a thief. He was one that mocked God. Now, he fears God. I think one of the most clearest graphic definitions of us, of what we are, is in Romans chapter 3. I'll ask you not to turn there. If you'd like to, you can. But the Bible does declare, as it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. It goes on to say, there is none that understandeth, there is none that seeketh after God. They are all gone out of their way. They are all together become unprofitable. There is none that doeth good, no, not one. No, not what you're not going to be the exception to that. Then it goes on to say in verse number 18, there is no fear of God before their eyes. So you understand characterizing people into this character, people don't fear God. People live as if there is no God. Our country is moving into a place where they don't fear God. No fear of God, no fear of judgment, no fear of death. The other thief here, still in his sin, still adamantly against Christ, he has no fear of consequences, no sense of guilt, no sense of justice, no desire to be forgiven, no desire for righteousness. But something happened to the other thief when he began to fear God. That's why the Bible says the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. I think one of the first evidences of a genuine conversion is a heightened awareness. Don't take this wrong, but listen carefully. One of the most interesting characteristics of someone that is genuinely saved is a heightened awareness that God is a threat to you. Yeah. And when you begin to realize that the judge of all the universe, all the world, is condemning you to death until you realize that you are depraved, that you are without God, that you are on your way to a sinner's hell, you cannot be saved. There must be a recognition and a realization that God is a threat to you. Dost not thou fear God, is the statement. How did he even get saved? How did he even call on the Lord? Because he started fearing God. 
He started coming to the place where he realized he was a man. Now listen, man is not good at this. Man is not good at fearing God. Man is good explaining away God, but man is not good at fearing God. Man is good, listen to this, man is good at playing God, but not fearing God. And we're living in a nation and a culture today where man does not fear God and that there is no God and you can live as you do, do as you will, and there's no want of righteousness, no desire for forgiveness, and we live as if they're... Teenager, I'm talking to you. I'm talking to you tonight and today. That there is a God that you are going to answer. You cannot trick your mom and dad. You cannot play this card that no one will find out. They will find out. God will bring it to judgment. This man is not asking to get down from the cross. The one that is fearing God, he knows... I'm not leaving this cross. I'm not even asking to get down. The other one still says, get me down. This thief that got saved, this thief that's fearing God, he said, I'm not asking to get down now. I got a bigger problem than this. I got a bigger problem than my crucifixion. I got a bigger problem than what Rome is doing to me right now. I got to answer a holy God. He is concerned about the judgment of God because he has violated the law of God. He is known to be a violator of the laws of God. He is condemned because he violated the laws of God. He knew that he violated the the laws of God. He knew it. And now he changed. My question is, how? What made him change? I see I'm running out of time again. What is it? What what is it this man that changed so much? We go immediately from here to John 6. That no man can come to, to, except the Father draw him. I understand that. I understand there's awakening. I understand that the Holy Spirit convicted him. On what and how? What was it? Now think about this. Let's exclude everything that this man could have possibly heard about Jesus Christ. We don't know what he's heard. We don't know if he heard about the miracles. We don't know if he uh, heard about the feeding of the five thousand. We don't know. Anything that this man knows about Jesus Christ, it could have hurt him. I don't know. But let's put ourselves on a cross with him. He's got his ears. He's got his eyes. He doesn't even have the ability to turn around and look behind him. His world is very small right now. He's got just a few hours to live. Now, what is he going to see that's going to change his attitude from one being a mocker, one that is cursing, to one that is now fearing God. What is it? I would say there's several things. I would say according to the book of Isaiah 53, as it describes the crucifixion of Christ, that he, was, he, was, he laid down his life. The Bible tells us that he was led as a lamb to the slaughter. This man's doing, he's different than anyone else. When Jesus Christ was crucified, you can imagine the Lord Jesus Christ with his body already been beaten beyond recognition. They had already plucked his beard out. They've already plaited a crown of thorns in his head, stuck into his head. They've already beaten him. And this bloody man now is 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 willingly, John, laying down on the cross. There's no wrestling him down. There's no fighting his arms to get the nails into his hands and into his feet. What is this man seeing 
that visibly is different. The way he was crucified, he did not react like all others have reacted. It could have been the way he was silent as they nailed him to the cross. It may have been how he responded to the mockery to his enemies. Now, you remember, when someone's crucified, they can speak. And anyone that was being crucified would many times have people that were there accusing them, and they would many times revile back. And it would be almost a cursing fest from the one that is being condemned to the one that is condemning. And there would be, if you would, this exchange back and forth from the criminal to those that were innocent. But when they reviled Christ and they derided Christ, he said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. That's different. That's different. Something's different about this man. It could have been that stubborn sign that was over his head. That sign that he did not even make himself. The description that on the cross where it said in Greek and Latin and Hebrew, three different languages, this is the king of the Jews. And as he's there mocking it, as he's there scourging, and as he's there with his own words deriding Christ, he's looking at that sign. The king of the Jews. The king of the Jews. Maybe it was the sign. Maybe it was the way he cared for his own mother while he's being crucified. Now, we live in a different culture than they lived there. My wife and I were talking about this yesterday. We have individual honor and dishonor. If one of your family members does something that's dishonorable, it's not a, in a culture today, it's not a dishonoring thing to your whole family. But in the Middle East, if a son does something that's dishonoring, the whole family's name is dishonored. Hasn't changed. So it's likely that this thief on the cross is dying without any family there. He's, he's been rejected from his family. He's being crucified for his crimes. His mother's not there. His dad's not there. His cousin's not there. No one's there other than those that are participating in the crucifixion of the criminal. But there's this lady, Mary, that's here. The mother of Jesus. Why is she here? And he looks to John, who is there. John, can I use, to kind of distill it in how it would happen? Take care of my mom. She's now yours. Got it. That's different. It's different. What made this man change? It may have been, I can't prove this. I've studied this. I've tried to find a definite timeline on how this all came together. But you remember they were crucified in the morning at 9 o'clock in the morning. It was the day of the Passover coming later. And so for six hours, they're going to be on the cross. But from the ninth hour, you'll find that there was darkness 
a prevailing darkness from the sixth hour to the ninth hour. And so it would be from 12 o'clock to 3 o'clock in the afternoon. But when the Bible talks about this darkness in Mark 15, it talks about this darkness when the Bible talks about it. It's not something that is a little dark. It's not a little eclipse. Eclipses don't last three hours. This is eternal darkness right now. How many have ever been down to one of those caves where they go down there about 40 or 50 stories under the ground? And they say, okay, everyone, turn all your cell phones off, all your flashlights off. And then they do that weird thing that actually you can feel the darkness. And they turn the lights off. And it's as if your entire world just changed. You cannot see, you cannot even comprehend that darkness, how no light around. This is the kind of darkness that was present at the crucifixion. There was nothing. Darkness. That's weird. Why is this here? It may have been that. It may have been the miracle of the garment. I mean, you got people at the foot of the cross. Some got his sandals, some got the, the inner clothing, and then they got this, uh, this robe, this, 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 uh, this seamless robe, and they, the soldiers say, you know, I'm taking this home. No, you, you can't take that home. That's, let's gamble for it. Let's cast lots. We don't want to tear this thing to pieces. I mean, there's no seams on it. You don't make a garment with no seams. You don't make a garment. It's double negative. You don't make a garment without any seams. This is a miracle. What is that? Can you imagine that? The gambling going on. Here's what I'm saying. Good understanding giveth favor, but the way of the transgressor is hard. Whatever it was, the consequences of his decisions have brought him to this place. And I will say this. He may have been paying close attention to what others are ignoring. They saw the same thing. With the exception of the Roman soldier that said, truly, this is a son of God. This man was paying attention. Can I say this, ladies and gentlemen? You better pay attention to things other people are ignoring. Can I say this when we talk about eschatological discussion? You better be paying attention to the signs of the times. What is coming? Others are ignoring it. God's people should not. Could have a number of different things, but here's what we see. He declares something. He declares that now he fears God. He's guilty. It all makes sense. I was talking to Linda Tice, and Linda's a dear friend of our church. When she was a young lady, Roe v. Wade was passed, and then legally, the, the law then gave um, freedom to abort unborn children out of the wombs of mothers across our nation, legally. And then we went into a holocaust from 1971 to today. A young young girl at that time, Linda Tice, she said, okay, when it was passed, I assume that the government knows what they're saying and what they're doing, that it's not really a human being, it's just a blob of tissue, And then she heard what the Bible said about life, about where it began. And she made this statement to me a couple of years ago. She said this statement. She sat down with her girlfriends and she said 
to her girlfriends, and I'm using this in a reverential way as she described to me this cataclysmic moment in her life where she realized what was happening. She says, oh my God, we are killing our babies. And she spent the last close to 60 years fighting and fighting and fighting. Whatever it was, here he is crucifying and watching his body fall apart. He's being crucified between, uh, 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 next to this man who claims to be the son of God. He's using language. He's abusing him. And he's yet watching something take place that's not normal. The way he acts, the way he talks, the way he forgives, the way his mother's there, and all the other things that are if you would, uh, evidences of something. He's thinking to himself, I'm running out of time. My life is almost over. This has got to be someone different than anyone else I've ever seen. Truly, he says, he's looking at him. He says, I know I, I'm, I'm deserving what I'm getting here. And he says, I'm not asking for you to get me off this cross, but I know that you are part of another kingdom. I know you're going somewhere. Now, you think about the remarkable faith, Bruce, on this. This is powerful. He don't look like a king right now. He looks like a bloody mess. He looks like a weak, bloody mess. That he's not even strong enough to overthrow Rome. He's not even strong enough to get himself down from the cross. You think about how weak he looks. And here through all of this, he understands this man is going to a different world. This man is a king. This man is going to a kingdom and I want to be a part of it. Remarkable faith. Amazing repentance. Amazing faith given the circumstances that he is saved in. Wow. And he makes this statement. Watch what it says. And I have to skip here. And he said, verse 42, he said unto Jesus, look at this word here, Lord. Lord, remember me when thou comest into thy kingdom. I know you're going somewhere I want to go to. I want to go to. And I just asked you if he would, when you get there, I don't deserve it. But I'm asking you, please, just to remember me. Wow. Wow. I don't know if you've ever reached that point in your life. He recognized the fact that Jesus is no ordinary man. And he understands that Jesus has committed no sin. He understands that Jesus is who he had claimed to be. It all clicked. Can I say it this way? The light went off. Oh. I mentioned Kay Crow this morning in my closing prayer. Kay Myself, Dan, and Lynn, we went out to dinner 15, 16 years ago. I don't know how long it was. We were sitting at dinner, and Kay was confused about salvation. She couldn't understand how to be forgiven. She was confused over the original sin and all the stuff that she had to unpack in her system of belief. And about two hours into that conversation, it was almost as if the light went on. She goes, I got it. I understand 
I understand who I am. I understand that I'm a sinner. I understand who Jesus Christ is. I understand that I need to be forgiven. And she went on the list. And so, you ready to get saved? Yes, I'm ready to get saved. She gloriously bowed her head, and the light went off, and she accepted Christ, got saved, baptized. Something happened here. And here we find an incredible transformation. Now, the Lord doesn't have to do this. But isn't God's grace so wonderful? He could have just said to the man, good. (laughs) That's good. Glad you finally got it. I'm glad you finally realized that you're a sinner. I'm glad you finally realized who I am. Good. That would be good if he just said that. But how do you understand that this man is about to die He's going through the darkest, by the way, the darkest valley every human has to go through. It's called the valley of the shadow of death. All of us have to go through that. The promise that we have in God's people, God's promise, is that we are, he'll never leave us nor forsake us in that valley. Now, if you die without Christ, you go to that valley alone, and you die without Christ alone, and you go to a hell without God alone. Now, he's going to go into this valley He's in it now. And he needed something that he could hold on to. A promise. And here's what Jesus says to him. Jesus is not hallucinating. Jesus is not leading him astray. Verse 43, and Jesus said unto him, Verily I say unto thee, Today, thou shalt be with me in paradise. He did not say to him, someday, maybe. He did not say to him, well, no, uh, you have to go to purgatory first and wait there until someone gets you out. And depending on how many people love you and can pay a certain amount of money, you can get out of that thing. And then, then maybe you can come over to paradise. I, but I, I don't really can't guarantee that because you have to have in, incense candles and all this. And so I don't really know. No, he gave him absolute clarity. Today, thou shalt be with me. I'm not leaving you. I'm right here in paradise, paradise heaven. I'm going, we're going to be with me in my kingdom. Now, this is where all works-based salvation systems crumble. He did not go to church. He did not give to any charitable organization. He did not do anything worthy, if you would, in terms of works for God. All he did was cry out to the Lord When thou comest into the kingdom, remember me. But he used the word Lord, which goes right to Romans 10, 9, where it says, thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus, and believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead. Promise, thou shalt be saved. Wow. No, he didn't say, did you mean that? He took it. No, this is amazing. Because of fulfilled prophecy, the Lord Jesus Christ's body would not be broken, would not have one broken bone. So at the sixth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, it is finished. And he gave up the ghost, not, you know, as Hollywood would say, he finally died. The Bible says he bowed his head, submitting himself to death. Now, the man on the left, the man on the right, the Bible says they had to break their legs 
And in doing so, they would be suffocated to death on the cross. They would there die of suffocation. The one man, of course, that was still in his sin, he died and went to hell. The man that died to his sin by accepting Jesus Christ died and went to heaven. The man in the middle died for both of their sins and all sins of mankind is ready to receive anyone that receives him as their savior. That's why God does not know a sin that he does not hate. We cannot understand the hatred that God has for sin. Nor does God not know a sinner that he does not love. And God does not know a better plan of salvation, that faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ. And God does not know a better time for you to be saved than right now. He didn't put it off. He didn't delay it. He was running out of time, and he knew it. And he came to the Lord Jesus Christ, fearing God, fearing God. What a moment. What a moment. And think about this. If you go to the grave when you die, your soul is going to live forever, ever. It will. There's no such thing as annihilation as the Jehovah Witness would like for you to believe. You debate with a Jehovah Witness, they believe in total annihilation of the soul, where there is not total damnation of the soul. They would take a Luke 16 where it does declare absolutely clear and with clarity that there is a hell. They would ignore the truths of, of the place of torment, eternal torment, that the Lord Jesus Christ warned us of. And they would take, and they have taken, the New World Translation, they took this verse, and they just moved the comma one word and changed the entire meaning of Jesus' response. And I'm going to just give you what it said. Jesus saith unto him, comma, today, thou shalt be with me in paradise. The New World Translation says, and Jesus saith unto him today, comma, thou shalt be with me in paradise. Changes the entire meaning. Seventy-four times the word, verily, verily, I say unto thee, is used, and it would be changed here. Duh. He is saying it today. Why would he say, I'm saying it today? He's telling them today, this man is going to be with me in paradise. I'm just not saying this today. Are you all with me today? It's amazing our theology sometimes dictates how we want to translate things. And so God's people, if you're saved, what a moment, what a moment, the viewpoint of what happened here 2,000 years ago on this bloody hillside. A moment of opportunity and a moment where this man went from a blasphemer to a child of God. Praise God for that. If you're here this morning and you're not saved, get saved. If you're here this morning and you're saved, you ought to thank God for your salvation. You're already turning me off right now. You always say, okay, finally he's done. Let's get out of this hot house. Without stopping to think about what it was. Up Calvary's mountain, one dreadful morn. Think about the words of that song. Think about the price that he paid for your sin and my sin. Wow, what a Savior.